here. This morning, I metaphorically ripped up the sermon that I was going to give. Metaphorically, because it was on that computer and I didn't want to, that's church property, and feel like tearing it in half. Um, but this one, I want to just break down into as simple of a question as is possible. We, it's, it's similar to thoughts I had, so I'm not totally unprepared, but just be prepared. Easter's a few Sundays ago, like was mentioned, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday we come together to worship is like a little miniature Easter Sunday. We get up early in the morning and we come together to gather around the body of Jesus and celebrate that it's no longer in the tomb. Praise the Lord. We're in the series called Why Jesus, which will hopefully accomplish a number of things, but namely address some of our main questions that we have as either new believers or maybe as believers who've been followers of Christ for a long time, but we're always too afraid to ask them. Last week, we discussed the death of Jesus Christ and why it had to be so brutal. And this week, we address the resurrection. And the question is a simple one. Maybe you've never asked it before. Do I need to believe in the resurrection? Or more personally, do I believe in the resurrection? It's a simple question. It's just a yes or no, but it's actually kind of hard. And the fact of the matter is that there's a long history in the Christian church, a long run of influence, if you will, a large pack of wolves, if you will, who've tried to convince us that there is no resurrection. And like any good wolves, they've been quiet and they've been sneaky about it. Wearing clothes of sheepskins or grandmothers, right? And softening their point so as to sneak into your home with wit and cunning without you noticing. What's especially sneaky is that a lot of these wolves don't even get the credit of being wolves because they themselves are convinced that they're doing you a service. They think that they're doing something wise, that they're doing something clever, that they're doing something smart, that they're expressing something with wisdom and with nuance. What am I talking about? In simplest terms, it's nuancing your way through the historical resurrection. Is there a resurrection? It's a yes or no question. Yes. And a lot of people just say, yes, historical fact. Others will come and actually will say something that's probably fairly appropriate. They'll say something like what Walter Kunith said. Very carefully and subtly, he talks about it this way, and in many ways, he's probably accurate about it, if you're careful with your words. He says, the resurrection of Jesus is clearly rooted in history, although it is not in itself a historical fact. The, re the reality of the resurrection of Jesus lies beyond our earthly categories. It is a primal miracle beyond the bounds of the imminent world. I'll read that again in case you didn't catch it. It's not a historical fact because it lies beyond our earthly categories, right? In other words, if you take scientific method or other things like that, there's no way to replicate what happened to Jesus in the grave. Like God creating from nothing, God raising Jesus up from death 
to life was a miraculous event. We don't have earthly historical categories to describe this sort of thing, right? And so, in a way, he's correct. It's not a historical fact if you're extremely careful how you describe what historical fact is, because it happened. But you're already sensing the discomfort, because as soon as you say that, you're one step away from some of our more sinister friends. One of the more influential theologians of the last couple centuries, even, is a a, a German named Rudolf Bultmann. Bultmann. Any of you heard of Rudolf Bultmann? We got a couple down here. Poor, poor them. (laughs) He says this about the resurrection. He says, a historical fact which involves a resurrection from the dead is utterly inconceivable. But he tries to say this in, again, such a sinister, snake-like, wolf-like way because he says, well, there's no historical resurrection But the true meaning of resurrection still remains the same. Christ meets us in the preaching of this word, of of the word, right? As the one who's crucified and risen, he meets us in the word of preaching. And the faith of Easter is the faith in the word of the preaching of Christ. And if you're not careful, you're drawn into, wow, look at this eloquent person who's so smart, who's so thoughtful, who's so careful and clever with their words. And all of a sudden, The resurrection of Christ is about creating some sort of meaning and not about whether or not a dead man became alive and ascended into heaven. And there is a phenomenal and profound difference. Only two of us read Rudolf Bultmann, praise the Lord. (laughs) He is one of the most influential theologians of our time. And you see it everywhere. This past Easter, I had a friend post on social media of a compost bin. And there was a project he was a part of that was composting, which is great. Compost, it's awesome. And he talked about when they throw their trash into the compost bin, they don't do it as, uh, as, as trash that goes to die, but as trash that goes to create new life again, right? A sign of the resurrection, Others talk about springtime, right? Spring, winter was the season of deadness in the, in the spring, right? We see the flowers bloom again, and it's like resurrection. Someone is an addict, right? And they die, and they go, and they recover in their recovery center, and they come out, right? And they're healed, and it's like a little resurrection. And again, you've got to be so careful because you know what? That's not resurrection. Is it like the resurrection? Yeah. But it's not resurrection. It's not the full picture of what Christ has done. It's a reduction of the power of God into something more palpable, more containable, more replicatable, because the resurrection is something hard to believe. And you can understand why so many make that change, why theologians do this, why people who want kind of a pop Christianity do this. You can go to the bookstores, right? And you can look even in Christian bookstores and how many books are about hard understanding of the resurrection compared to how many are about self-help or maybe societal change and transformation, right? 
which do we believe in our heart of hearts as a Christian community is more important? The profound, real, dead-to-life, human-embodied resurrection of Jesus Christ or like self-help stuff and societal change and gardening and things? Our bookstores say this one, right? Lee Strobel's famous book, The Case for Christ, laid out an argument for the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And in it, he affords only three options that could be true about Jesus Christ himself, right? Either he was a liar about everything that he said, he was a lunatic who was not trying to lie but was just crazy and ended up being wrong, or based on what he did, what happened, and the actions of the apostles and those who followed them afterwards, he was actually Lord and what he said was true. And he only could have raised from the dead for it to make sense. That's Lee Strobel's argument. The problem is that this, if he's actually Lord, do you know what he also is in the minds of the world? A lunatic. (laughs) You can't have him be a liar and be Lord, right? And we don't need a Lord who's a liar. And you can't have him be a lunatic and Lord, but the reality is that even if he is Lord, the world will look at him as a lunatic. And the world will look at his apostles and his disciples and any of us who follow him as lunatics, right? Paul preaches Jesus Christ. He goes, he's actually in prison at the time, and he starts preaching about the death and the resurrection of this, this Jewish Messiah. And a man looks at him, a man of authority, a learned man, a wise man, and he says, Paul, you're losing your mind. Why? Because he was acting crazy? Because he was thrashing in his chains? No, because he said a dead man came to life. Jesus. In the book of John, which we just read a little bit of today already, is talking about how anyone who follows him must eat his body and drink his blood. And he says in this same phrase, or in the same turn, he says, whoever eats this bread will live forever. He's talking about this one-two punch that we have at the core of our Christianity, this confession of faith that the Hennies led us in. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And most of those who are listening to him, who even have been following him for quite some time, leave. And his disciples come to him quietly. They're like, Jesus, this is really hard. Paul taught about the resurrection. They thought he was crazy. Jesus taught about the resurrection. They thought he was crazy. Rudolf Bultmann teaches about the resurrection, decides he doesn't want to look crazy. And all those who try and soften the resurrection with fancy wordplay or half-belief are just trying not to seem like a lunatic. And I get it. I don't want to look like a lunatic. I want to have a faith that's not that radical, that makes people like me, that makes people, you know, accept me. I want a faith that's really accessible. So I can go to my neighbor and say, like, hey, you should follow Jesus. And they're like, why? And I'm like, well, it kind of helps. (laughs) That's so much easier than going to my neighbor who's not a believer and saying, hey, you should follow Jesus. Why? Because he's the only way for you not to die. (laughs) Because only in him is life and life eternal. They're like, that's really harsh. And you're like, yeah, but he rose from the dead. (laughs) Okay, you're kind of crazy. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Feel free to bring me cookies, but I'm going to have someone taste test them before I eat them. (laughs) 
Christianity without the resurrection is nothing. You've got to understand this. Christianity with a half-baked belief in the resurrection is nothing. My wife and I uh, left church last week. I drove uh, our new car. It's a 2006. She drove our old car. It's a 2003. Uh, And uh, it turned off while she was on the road. It just, bloop, gone, right? The alternator was out. She had to pull into a gas station, park there. We tried to charge it a bunch. No matter what we could do, car couldn't get home, right? It took us four separate charges on the side of the road to get it into our garage. The last one, actually, we've got a little curb in our garage. I coasted. I tried to time our garage door opening with how much speed that I had left after the car turned off, and I turned in, and the front two tires got up the curb, and then it pulled back down. And we didn't have quite enough room on the other side to fit the other car in to charge it again. It was great. Christianity without the resurrection is a car that cannot drive and has nothing to charge its batteries. It's just stuck dead on the road. It looks kind of like a car. Useless. We love the zoo. Who here loves the zoo? I had a revelation at the zoo. Um, Natural revelation because someone told it to me. It wasn't like from God or anything. Of the eagles. The eagles, there's two bald eagles at the zoo, and they're beautiful, and they're majestic, and they cannot fly. They're stuck on the ground. The symbol of freedom, right? Trapped in a cage, unable to move. And you know what's worse? The sound of the bald eagles that we hear and all of our cool things are not real. It's a red hawk. Bald eagles sound closer to chickens. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Christianity that doesn't have full belief of the resurrection looks like this symbol of freedom, and yet is just a flightless, caged bird that squawks. First Corinthians 15 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still lost in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Boltman, among many, 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 many others, don't want to live a life where they're pitied. They don't like receiving pity. They like pride. They like having something significant to say, and they like being somebody important and well-respected. They want to live a life where they're proud, and in searching for a life in which they get to be proud, they lose the gospel. In its entirety, they lose their life, not in the way Christ talks about losing it for his sake, and they lose Christ himself. But the main culprit of our resurrection, non-conviction, and half-true is not Rudolf Boltman, is not our friends on social media, but far more often is you sitting in your chair, half-believing something that you confess. We do it every day. Often we do it without knowing it, just like Rudolf Boltman. Like a wolf in sheep's clothing, we deceive ourselves into thinking we believe the resurrection, all while rejecting it in part to a yes or no question we give a kind of. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. 
We'll have it up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, we usually have them under our chairs, but for the last year we have not for some safety, but praise the Lord, the day is near ahead where we'll have them in our chairs again. But we can read together from the screen. You can read from your phone. If you bring a book, by all means, pull that out. If you're at home with us, pull out your Bible. Starting from the beginning. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, you might recall, Jews tried to stone you there, and yet you want to go back? And Jesus answered, clear as day. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And his disciples were like, "Mm mm-hmm, yep. (laughs) So, (laughs) stoning and stuff. So after this, he said, going on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And still much smarter than Jesus, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. (laughs) But Jesus had been speaking, of course, of his death, his disciples thinking he meant natural sleep. So he finally told them plainly. He said, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, Oh, I I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the word of the Lord. What goes on to happen is that Martha goes back to fetch Mary, and Mary comes out, and Jesus has them take him to Lazarus in his tomb, and he sees the sadness, and Jesus weeps with them. 
has pity on them. And then Jesus calls out in a loud voice, sticking his head deep in this tomb, rolling the stone away that was at the front of this cave. And he says, hey, Lazarus, get up. And Lazarus is like all wrapped in his mummy stuff. And he comes out. That's the story. There's a lot to say about the compassion of Jesus. There's a lot to say about um, the miraculous power of Jesus. There's a ton to say about this story. But for us today, Thomas and Martha, two of the greatest examples of Christian faith that we have in history, are for us examples of us, right? People who have heard Jesus teach about the resurrection. Jesus taught them about the resurrection. People who have actually seen Jesus raise a young child from the dead earlier, right? People who have heard that they need to eat the body and blood, that Jesus will die and will rise up again so that they can have eternal life, and yet who do not quite fully believe them, believe him. And for us, they're a phenomenal example because you could ask, do they believe Jesus? Yes. But are they fully convinced? No. Not many of us like here are like Rudolf Bultmann, right? But full belief, or at least the resurrection as reality, whether or not you choose to believe it, is essential to the Christian faith. Without it, there are none of these things. Let's get these up on the slides if we can. If there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection in full, then Jesus did not, and therefore you have no means of, overcoming sin. The cross, right, is where Jesus takes the sin of the world upon himself, and he dies, and he takes it down into hell with him, where he preaches to those who have died. And if he did not raise back to life, who has the last word? Sin does. Because sin overcame the author of life. Which leads us to our next point. If there's no resurrection, there is no overcoming death. This is plain as day, but consider the ramifications of it. There is no overcoming death. Jesus, the author of life, if he dies and he stays dead, who's stronger? God or death? Death is God if there is no resurrection. It has the final say. Time marches on, and we lose with everyone else. The third one, humanity in heavenly places. Now we're getting a little deeper, but Jesus took our mortality, took our frailty, right, and brought it up into heaven with him. If Jesus did not bring humanity, weakness, frailty, mortality up into heaven with him, does it belong? No, which means, do you belong? No. And finally, the resurrection is essential because it overcomes sin, because it's the sign of the overcoming of death, because it puts humanity, our weakness, our frailty, our mortality up in heavenly places with Christ, and because it proves everything that Jesus ever said and did. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, he is like every other person who spoke lunacy or lied in order to gain a following. 
If Jesus was raised from the dead, he is the Son of God, and it proves his words to be true and fully true. Which means for us, do we believe them some of the way, or do we believe them all of the way? What benefit is there if there's only a little bit of a resurrection? None. And if there's no resurrection, what value do Jesus' words have? None. Yet if there is a resurrection, they are the truth of heaven. Martha, our first example, believed these things sort of. And here is, I think, now getting into the ways in which we fall short of what, uh, what faith in this looks like. Martha believed these things, this idea of the resurrection, sort of, but only as a future reality. She said, yeah, Jesus, I know there's a resurrection at a coming day. But in only believing them as a future reality, she missed the fact, as you are now all intuiting, that it is also a present reality. Jesus says, I am now the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, present tense, will live even though they die. Romans 8 says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, with the assumption that the spirit of who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. This is a present reality. Martha struggles to believe it as a present reality and only as a future reality. And praise the Lord, she believes it as a future reality. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's so hard and so good, especially when you're struggling with the death of someone who you love dearly like your own brother. And yet Jesus comes and says, no, this is a present reality. What happens if you start to, with subtle nuanced unbelief, often unbeknownst to yourself, neglect the present power of the resurrection, still holding on to the future, but neglecting the present, well, gifts of the Spirit probably are not going to be terribly active in your life because you've neglected the Spirit of the resurrection Christ in you. And therefore, your influence on the world for good to be a light in the world is probably going to be diminished. Second, your power over sin will be under misunderstood, right? If the resurrection power of Christ is only a future reality, what power do I have over sin presently in my body? And yet Jesus says, and the apostle says, I'm giving you the spirit of God to overcome sin and death. You will live even though you die. And finally, if you don't understand the present power of the resurrection, the resurrection spirit of God in you today you're going to lose sight of your purpose because what matters? Because in contrast with the future glory that you're anticipating, your life is just mud and dirt. And yet Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And your life with that spirit now is full of purpose and influence and sin doesn't have the last say even today. Don't be like Martha in that way. Thomas believed these things. Did Thomas believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Did Thomas give his life to follow him, right? Sacrificing his reputation and his profession and all of these other things in order to follow a typically homeless man around a small part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. But, and this is where some of us fall, who are unlike Martha, who has struggled with the future reality, some of us more like Thomas, 
believe in the resurrection, but only as a present reality or the power of the resurrection forged by human will. Does that make sense? We believe in the power of God in order to be transformative and influential in our world, in our present day, and yet we neglect the promised future. And what happens when we neglect the future power of the resurrection? Some of you will know these experiences, either as your own or witnesses. Gifts of the Spirit are not not present like they might be for, for the previous group, but they become abused. Because I need to be influential now, you see? And I abuse the gifts that I have in order to impact the world around me. We lose, if we neglect a full belief in the future resurrection, the power to forgive. You might say, what do you mean, Jed? That doesn't quite make sense. God's mercy is such, not that he just wants you to forgive somebody who's wronged you, but he wants you to forgive them with the same hope that Christ has that you will share a home eternally with them. Think about the depth of that mercy. God forgives us, not just to kind of be done with us, but with the hope and the desire that we will dwell with him in eternity. And the depth of our forgiveness with the enemies of ours is expected to be the same. If you don't have an understanding of the future resurrection, your ability to forgive to the depths which God desires us to forgive, which are part of his healing, his light, his fresh water to the world, will be squashed. And because you're focused on influence in the world, why would I forgive bad people anyway? Rather get rid of them. Right? And purpose, if you don't have a sense of the future hope of God rooted exclusively in his grace and in the power of the resurrection, you will fail, and all of that purpose that you stored up to make a difference in the world will wash away to nothing. Thomas, we know, he was courageous and bold. He knew that if they went back to Judea, they were going to try and kill Jesus, and he says... Let's go. He's got strong faith, and yet his belief in the resurrection power of Jesus is only half. It's a sort of. It's a nuanced. And as a result of these half beliefs, we see in Martha and in Thomas a full picture, but in neither the whole thing. And maybe we see us Maybe we see us. Maybe I see me, who far too often neglects the present power of the Lord, because I'm so confident, right? He's going to raise us all. He's going to make everything good. Isn't that good enough? But the one who actually believes in the resurrection, believes in the future promise and the present power, and to that person, sin has no hold. Sure, they may stumble. Whenever sin rears its ugly head again, they can look inward and what do they find? They find the very power of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ to overcome and say, nope, 
not again. Death has no hold. They don't fear death, not because they're arrogant or proud, but because their life is hidden with Christ in heavenly places. And like we said about humanity being in heaven, they know that they are seated in heavenly places with Christ, who's preparing a home for them, who's preparing a home for you. And they know that even though the world rejects them, that they don't belong in it, calls them a lunatic, calls them crazy, calls them a fanatic, calls them a radical, calls them dumb and stupid, that they belong exactly where they want to. Now and then. We struggle because of these two primary things, I think. One is uh, we don't want to look like a lunatic, and I'm going to just say, sorry, you might have to. The second one is because oftentimes, not malicious, just weakness, sometimes our belief in God rests on whether or not he's acted in the ways we needed him to recently, and it feels like God's just too late. How can I believe in a present power of the resurrection when God didn't show up when I needed him to? And if he's not going to show up now, can I believe that he's going to show up then? And I want to tell you, this is, this is kind of the main thing, if you will. God's not too late, just because it feels like he is. And even if you, like Martha and like Thomas, Jesus was too late for Martha, right? If you'd shown up earlier, you could, have brought, you could have healed him. Jesus was too late for Thomas. Thomas thought they were gonna storm the city and they were gonna take over, and yet it didn't happen. He was too late. Even if, like Martha and Thomas, you don't quite get it, you're just doing your best to believe at the moment, Jesus now, in this moment or later, is gonna show up at your door He's going to show you his resurrection power. He's going to stick his head in that tomb of yours. He's going to say, hey, get up. Let's go. And he's going to walk into the house where you've been hiding out because your purpose in life came crashing down to nothing. And you're not going to believe, even though everybody around you is telling you, and he's going to show you, he's going to say, look, nope, not too late. I'm not too late. Come to life. Believe in the resurrection, that the power is now. And the question for us is just a yes or no one. And by golly, I'm trying to tell you the answer is yes. Jesus was raised from the dead. And I want to be a person who believe it. Literally everything changes when we believe it, and if it's real, everything has already changed, and I'm telling you it is. Sin, if you come into the fullness of the power of Christ, will have no hold on you. Death will not be something that you need to fear. It has no hold on you, and you, as ostracized as you feel, belong in the very house of God because Christ has taken you up in all your weakness, all your mortality, right to the very top of existence. So if you believe it and you cast yourself upon Christ, you'll receive it. And if not, either a full Rudolph Boltman no 
or an atheist, no, or just a, well, maybe kind of. You'll receive whatever you choose instead of it, it being the resurrection and the resurrection power. Up even to the whole world. Maybe you'll get the whole world. But I'm going to choose, and we're going to choose, to cast ourselves on the death of Christ, that one-two punch of the death and the resurrection followed by the ascension, and we'll receive heaven. We'll receive God himself, and we'll receive life eternal with Christ who is raised from the dead. Do you believe in the resurrection? Let's pray. Father, there is no one like you. And Lord, there's no gift like the one that you've given us in your son. And so, Lord, we choose to believe by your grace, by the spirit in us that cures our blindness, help us to see. For those of us who are proud like myself, Lord, would you give me the humility to believe. God, thank you for the ways we've believed already, and yet help our unbelief. And Lord, would we experience the fullness of your resurrection power in our life as a community together. That we might influence our neighborhoods, that we might care for one another. Lord, that we would be full of purpose and that your kingdom would expand. And Lord, I pray that we would know with confidence the fullness of your resurrection power, that in death we can still have hope, Lord, that we can forgive those who have harmed us and long for something better for them, even that they might be blessed. Lord, we worship you. We pray these in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Let's take a few moments before you go and just sit. The Spirit of God will convict us of righteousness. It will convict us of sin. It will teach us who Jesus is. So just ask, Spirit of God, would you convict me of my unknown wolf in sheep's clothing, internalized unbelief and unrighteousness, Lord, and root it out for the sake of of your glory and your name. And elders, if you would come up and prepare yourselves to pray for those who might seek to receive it.